Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Uh, today we are talking finally, at long last, with the great and wonderful Alistair Kroll, uh, who is home not only under COVID-19 quarantine, but with a broken leg, and he's gone off his meds so that he can talk to us in a lucid and brilliant way, and we are very appreciative of that. So, Alistair Kroll, why don't you uh, introduce yourself to our listeners, and then we will start talking about uh, Khan Academy and Dolores Umbridge and so many wonderful things. Sure. So, uh, hey, this is Alistair. Uh, I'm a Montrealer. I spend my time at the intersection of technology and society running conferences, writing books, uh, background in the tech industry, uh, run some conferences on digital government, and I've been teaching a class at HBS called Data Science and Critical Thinking, which is about getting MBAs to think a little better about data and decisions. Oh, and I wrote a book called Lean Analytics. Um, and I wish I had taken some meds because then I could blame not being very clever on those. So uh, a lot, lot of things we have to talk about. But uh, probably the, the first thing that I, I was thinking about, which is coming to the fore right now because of all these, all these colleges have been shutting down and education is going online. And it's, it's an interesting thing because it's suddenly sort of uh, being a, I don't know, like a proof of concept kind of thing. It's like sort of putting the fire under the ass to say, well, can these things actually happen online? And as I was saying to you before we went on air, uh, I saw from my students for, you know, and I'm not alone, my, my wife saw the same thing and other friends of ours that students were skipping class and learning what they were supposed to have learned in class from YouTube videos, specifically from Khan Academy. And I went and watched uh, Khan, and uh, it was just mind-blowing to me because he's a, he's a very, very good teacher. He's, he has it's, – it's hard to tell when you see real genius. It's hard to tell whether they've learned it at some point or it was just sui generis and they just kind of figured them out themselves. But, like – I know that like when, when he's teaching something that I know really well, 
he invariably goes for the best possible anecdote like like an anecdote that that I never thought of but that explains what you want to explain really really well or uh, an anecdote that I came up with or good teachers I know came up with after five, 10 years of like, you know, working at that job. Right. So the fact that students have access to things like that, right. And Peter draws and like, you know, there's all these like amazing people out there on YouTube, right. Which, uh, who can kind of just press fast forward on people's learning about things. Well, right. to quote to quote a very smart guy predicting things around the coronavirus, uh, there's going to be a rise in academic pr- productivity and an increase in online learning. <laughs> um, always read what the other person said beforehand. I'm going to ask you some questions about lean analytics later. Yeah. Um, but I think that there's a there's a study. I, I wrote a piece a few years ago called "We Could Fix Education, But Unions Won't Let Us." which got me all kinds of hate mail and some nasty threats, some of which came from .edu IP addresses, which I thought was informative. Um, but my point was that we know how to fix education. There was a project in New York called, there was a project in New York City called the School of One. And the School of One took children in the lower quartile of math productivity and moved them, or sorry, lower decile of math productivity and put them into the top quartile in a few months by giving them education in the model that worked for them on a one-on-one basis. And then it was shut down. Um, And so I think the core of this, the challenge to this is that um, we, two things. First of all, uh, when you have analog physical learning, it's one to many and the teacher has a hard time knowing what the students are doing, whether they're catching up. When you have digital learning, when you're reading a tablet, it can read you back. It knows if you're paying attention. It knows how long you're on a page. It knows which sessions you, which things you didn't read. Uh, We may even get to the point where it can read your emotions and comprehension and so on. But far more importantly, school is backwards. In the old days, the guy who taught physics was the smartest person in the village at physics because what you cared about was learning physics from the local physicist. But the odds that you happen to be be born in the village with the smartest physicist are pretty slim. And so for everyone else, it would be nice if you could listen to the best physicist teacher. Similarly, um, when you have a problem with your physics homework, your parents are not likely able to help you with it. And so the flip the classroom proposal suggests that we should be doing our homework at school and our schoolwork at home, especially today when we have access to the best teachers of the best analogies, which naturally rise to the top because of student outcomes and so on. Uh, We could easily look at the health of student outcomes and the health of um, and the effectiveness of student outcomes. And alongside that, um, we could say you go into school and you learn from school, but at the same time, uh, the, the work you do at school is really the homework. It's, it's you coming in and trying to solve a problem and somebody is helping you understand it. And so the whole school system is backwards. And there's a lot of perverse incentives for teachers to continue using the same slides they used, uh, just look at the hue and cry when they came out with the new math. Um, the idea that if a student is really good and they ask a question the teacher can't answer, doing some homework or they find a new way to solve something, the teacher looks stupid. We have to change that culture. And so I do think that we are going to upend the learning model. I think you're also going to have a tremendous number of parents after this pandemic going, oh my God, teaching is hard. I don't like looking after kids. 
Um, and I think we may be in a perfect storm for education with the combination of broadly available free, free online education and a realization by parents that the real work is helping the children do their homework, not listening to good content because that exists abundantly. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay. So many things. Um, first, I, I absolutely think you're right. Um, there's, and I, I see this in a, you know, something that we've talked about before this started recording, but um, to some extent, this is a game theoretical problem, right? So uh, it makes sense uh, for a military, let's say, uh, to, to basically try and say, we're not going to leave any, any man in the field, right? We're going to like, you know, saving private Ryan kind of thing. And it makes sense from a union standpoint to say, uh, we're going to protect like, you know, the last shall be first, you know, almost like a kind of a Christian notion, right? Like we're going to protect our weakest link because our weakest link is, you know, where we are, uh, you know, where, where we need to really focus our attention. But unfortunately, if you're trying to like manage a good society, a well-functioning, efficient, good society, this kind of leads to all these like really these slippery slope arguments that lead to like very, very uh, antisocial, almost like sociopathic outcomes. So you have police unions that are defending the shittiest cop right, that has, that racks up, like, half of the department's, like, abuse and battery and police brutality charges. They they defend that cop because they feel like if we don't defend him, and it's almost always a him, uh, uh, that this is a slippery slope and that they're going to come out for, for, come after everybody, right? And I've seen this as a, as a Sejet prof where, I mean, I got my job, uh, I may lose my job for saying this online, but like I got my job replacing a guy who was a serial kind of sort of sexual predator who used his position as a prof at John Abbott College to take advantage of young people uh, who were just sort of trying to figure out their sexuality and he used his position as a way to sort of take advantage of them. And he got away with this for a long time. And when he finally got nabbed, because in a digital age, you know, he didn't realize that there was a record of everything, you know, all those like dick pics and shady messages you send, there's like a message, there's a record of them now, right? Uh, so he got in trouble and, the initial response of the union and the department was to defend him, right? Not because they actually agreed with him, but because of this game theoretical model that is written into kind of left-wing syndicalism, which is like, we need to defend our weakest links, right? Like, because, uh, yeah, you know, he's an asshole, but he's our asshole. I think if you unpack this, that a little, this corrupts all of education and so many things. So, but I think I, I'm a big fan of whenever something seems complex, step back because then maybe the pattern emerges. Um, we are in the middle of the biggest shift that our species has undergone since 
maybe the evolution of communication. Um, the move from analog to digital is something we have not properly understood. It's only affected certain industries. But the last century was based, since probably the invention of mass production, was based on economies of scale. Um, there was a Civil War general, no, Civil War, um, I think it was a lieutenant, who after the Civil War decided to go and um, become a railroad engineer. And uh, it turned out, and he ran the Erie Railroad, um, and it turned out that railroads had a real problem because when you had to manage a stretch of rail more than 50 miles long, things went kind of pear-shaped. They just stopped working. So he set up a set of hierarchies where one person managed a 50-mile stretch, and several of those people reported to someone else, and they reported to someone else, and so on. And this atomicity of responsibility meant that the railroads became much, much more uh, functional. He is considered the father of the modern org chart. And what he was doing was drawing the machine into which all these people functioned as cogs. And so he found a way to achieve uh, efficiency at scale. Prior to that, when a system got too big, it fell apart because we didn't have methods for letting it scale. So if the 20th century was the... Um, the century of, of economies of scale. Economies of scale work because the marginal cost of an additional unit is small because it's amortized across the means of production. So if I make another widget, it doesn't cost me the price of the factory. It just costs me a tiny percentage of the factory plus the parts for the widget. And as a result, whatever the resources in a system were, whether they were employees in a business or iron going into widgets or fuel going into an airplane, those resources mattered. So every business scrambled to achieve economies of scale. If I could make my software the default software, then many developers would start using it and I would win. If I could make my COVID prevention standards for face masks the standard I would win because that's what people had to buy and so on. And obviously this has been echoed through uh, Eisenhower's military industrial complex rant that once the, with this, the industry comes up with standards at scale, it undermines things. And it's only in a crisis that we're willing to break the shackles of standardization. But I think what's happening is unions emerged as a response to the injustices of economies of scale. When corporations treated people like resources and cogs in a machine, unions gave those resources a counterbalance. They gave them the ability to push back by saying, we will stop the machine from working. The 21st century is an economy of skill. It's not an economy of scale. I can develop a piece of software. WhatsApp, which had a billion users, had like 11 employees because they just built it efficiently and it scaled really well. Are you and serious? So, 11? Yeah, yeah, at the time of acquisition, it was like 11 employees. Because oh my God. All, everything was automated, right? The, the product did the innovating. And so when you transition from an, in, an era of economies of scale to an era of economies of skill, you take the old model of public action and solidarity. Solidarity means all of the machine is in it together and you have to replace it with something. And I think a lot of the civil rights abuses and social injustices we're seeing today are a result of us not having come up with the counterbalance to the economy of skill world, the gig, gig economy world. Um, and we're still wrestling with this as a society. So the fact that we've moved from analog to digital means the marginal cost of the first unit and the nth unit are identical. 
So there is no longer a huge advantage to economy of scale. And we haven't recognized that the move from analog to digital moves us from an economy of scale to an economy of skill. And consequently, a lot of the old systems we had to put checks and balances on the machinery of society won't function because they haven't caught up yet. And I think that's what's really playing out behind this. Well, I mean, as Andrew Yang and Yuval Noah Harari have, have pointed out on numerous occasions, uh, one of the problems I immediately see with what you're saying, it's, it's not that you're wrong. I, I think you're right, actually. Um, it's just how do you achieve social equilibrium and social peace and something that looks like, like a reasonable outcome for most people with that much change, right? And so because, you know, if we take a sort of a, an example from like a Discovery Channel, like nature show, I mean, generally speaking in nature, there are some exceptions and I will enumerate at least one of those. Um, but generally speaking, when there's an evolution between, let's say, predator and prey, so the lion gets a little bit faster um, or the cheetah gets a little bit faster. And so the gazelle uh, gets a little bit faster too. And so the slow ones get eaten. But overall, uh, if the gazelles didn't have the lions and the cheetahs and the you know lions and the cheetahs didn't have the gazelles, they would go extinct. So they need each other. They're in a kind of symbiotic relationship. But the evolution generally happens in a pretty kind of uh, steady rate so that they can co-evolve and they can adjust to the new situation. Uh, what's really weird about the 21st century and technology with, with Homo sapien is that we make these changes that are so fast that... Uh, most people just don't have the ability to adjust. And, okay, maybe young people can adjust. Uh, maybe sort of people in middle age can adjust. But humans in general, even if you take into account, like, neuroplasticity and stuff like that, uh, they can usually only adjust a couple of times, right? They can't adjust constantly. Like, you have stories, uh, like my father-in-law, who... You know, after World War II, uh, moved to the United States from Finland, and he didn't speak any English, and he, he learned English. Uh, you have lots of stories of this, where people move when they're young from, you know, to a new place, and they learn a new language. And I have, I have students who move here from Syria, war-torn Syria, and they... They learn how to speak French and English, and they're they're quite good. They've got an accent, but they're quite good. But if if you're going to accelerate the rate of change so rapidly, the way that technology does, at a certain point, you've pressed fast forward it, it, to such an extreme extent that like people have to reinvent themselves again and again, and like. You know, I'm 45. Like a 45-year-old just can't, um, just can't do that. You know, in the way that uh, that other people can. Well, right? let me just say, I, on Tuesday, I broke my leg. Um, one of the organizations I work with shut down its entire event business, and 
Uh, I think it, you know, reinvention is a necessary skill that favors the young for sure. If you look at uh, the difference between fluid and crystallized intelligence, um, you know, crystallized intelligence is supposed to provide uh, a a length of uh, a modicum of of wisdom and longevity that means that if you're if you're sailing a boat and you move the rudder back and forth too much, you slow down, and so there's supposed to be a certain amount of steadfast consistency that comes from wisdom and don't be too impetuous. And then there's also the fluid intelligence of youth, which is you're, you're, you don't have a lot of patterns to compare to, so you analyze the situation quickly and you form a conclusion, which may or may not be wrong, um, and it may be inefficient to form your own new pattern, new conclusion. If I know that when I build a bridge a certain way, it'll fall down, it's probably inefficient for a kid to build a bridge without looking at how to build bridges. The thing is that time, there are times in history when it has been very useful to have fluid intelligence and, and uh, unusual thinking. And there are times in history and where believing that tomorrow will be like yesterday, only more so is a liability. And there are times in history where volatility is damaging and dangerous and people want some stability. The challenge increasingly is that that has become the basis of most political polarization. Uh, if you look at pr- the preponderance of people who vote as uh, conservatives, liberals, independents, and so on, who vote for certain social policies. And I think we as a society need to realize that the two are valuable. But the reality is the world is changing so quickly that fluid intelligence is able to handle things much better than crystallized intelligence. Um, Anybody who sat down today and said, I'm going to build Congress from scratch in the U.S., the American Congress, would immediately say, what do you mean representation? Why do we, I can go online and I can upvote or downvote a policy. I can like or, or not like a particular statement. Why would I ever elect a body of old people to represent my things? If, I, if my, my constituency says we like the color orange and that person goes to government with the intention of voting for orange and then you know a lobbyist convinces them that purple is the right thing to do, they're, uh, they're literally misrepresenting us if they do that. What the hell is wrong with a system of representation in a world where everybody's got a device in their, pot, in their pocket that can de- connect, directly connect? But we are dealing with institutions that are themselves unwilling to change. And I think the danger is not whether a person can change or not. The danger is whether we, we, we are unwilling to change our institutions to reflect the new reality. Once upon a time, Taxi cabs were magical. Like I didn't own a car, but I could stand in the street, someone would wave their hand, and a car would pick them up. That's incredible. That was a superpower. Now, with the smartphone, you want me to stand in the street and wave in the rain, and maybe a car will pick me up, and maybe it'll yell at me if I'm not driving far enough away? That's a horrible user interface. Why would you do that to your users? And so something that used to be a benefit becomes a liability if we don't allow it, if we don't constantly update it to what new technology is. If taxis had built an app, Uber would have no leverage in the market. If Blockbuster had done streaming successfully without late fees, when Blockbuster went under, it was making more of its money from late fees and concessions than anything else. If Blockbuster had wanted... Is that right? Yeah, and Blockbuster actually introduced a streaming product before Netflix. But Nef- the different here's the story of Blockbuster and Netflix. Both of them knew streaming was coming, and both of them knew that current internet broadband was not fast enough to stream. Blockbuster saw that as a good sign because it meant they could wait. 
Netflix saw it as a bad sign because it meant they were going to run out of money. So Netflix turned the postal service into a broadband network by stuffing DVDs and envelopes. It's not whether the future is going to change. It's whether you want it to change, not just are ready for it to change. You have to actively want the future to change. Every great change has been made by somebody who wanted that change to happen. And so it's about institutions wanting to reinvent themselves constantly. And that is not in the nature of humans. It's not in the nature of of crystallized intelligence. And I think until we come up with a system of societal system that wants to constantly reinvent itself based on what's possible, we're going to keep having these partisan objective, uh, partisan objections and, and uh, infighting. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's, it's absolutely against our nature. I mean, I, to a large extent, and especially lately since this whole pandemic hit, I feel like, like Rousseau was was probably, you know, largely right when he said, "We do not know what our nature permits us to be." So I, I think if there's a lot of plasticity there, but I mean, I think you know, I think it's Yuval Noah Harari who says that uh, that that basically we were a very we're basically opportunistic omnivores, and so we are very curious and very changeable and we're good at adapting to brand new environments. Um, but since the rise of agriculture and civilization, this has made us uh, like, this has made us kind of sort of uh, get into a rut and get into specialization and get much more rigid than we normally would be. Well, I mean, we're, we're products of a number of conflicting rules, right? The number one rule for me, if I look at the universe, the number one sort of underlying law of the universe is aspiration. Everything in the universe is aspiring to do something. Uh, I had an, one of the best conversations of my life was with uh, Ray Ozzie, who was the chief scientist for Microsoft at the time, and Kevin Kelly, who was the editor-at-large for Wired, at like three in the morning in California. And we were talking about how to find intelligent life in the universe. And, um, you know, as one does, um, and the conclusion we came to was that you should look for extropy. So the universe tends towards entropy, Mm -hmm. meaning chaos, right? So anywhere that is not tending towards entropy, there must be a system that is organizing towards the opposite of entropy, which we called extropy. The problem is that to take a system, if you take a bunch of uh, randomly scattered balls in a room and you put them in a line, you've expended energy to do so. And so... Everybody, I think, knows by now that the universe will die in a horrible heat death. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get all philosophical here, but you, you, you invited me, so this is your nickel. Um, <laughs> so if the universe is going towards heat death, and everything we do to try and fight the entropy of heat death, i.e. to introduce entropy, whether that's life or putting a bunch of balls in a straight line that have been randomly scattered, expends energy. And expending energy accelerates the heat death of the universe, even infinitesimally, right? By you moving those balls into a straight line, you have created, you've consumed energy outside that system that has introduced more entropy into the system. So the universe is in a weird predicament. The universe will burn itself out, and any efforts it makes to not burn itself out will accelerate burning itself out. Interesting, right? So 
if you think of the role of humans in the universe or sentient life in the universe, what are we here for, right? I think we're here as the sensing organ of the universe. We're here to observe the universe. We're here to figure out what's going on. When you look at structures, universal structures, um, and there's a bunch of people who have written about holarchies like Ken Wilber and so on, the idea that you have letters that produce words, words that produce sentences, sentences that produce paragraphs, that produce chapters, that produce books, that produce libraries. These are what are called holons, uh, individual elements that are part of a greater whole. Um, atoms that go into molecules, that go into tissues, that go into organs, that go into humans, that go into families, and so on. It is the height of hubris for us as a species looking at the universe to somehow think that we are at the top of a holarchy. So you need to step way back and say the human function is, uh, is abiding by these universal constants like survival of the fittest and aspiration. We are a localized pocket of extropy that is consuming resources and accelerating the entropy of the universe in order to self-organize. For a long time, the most efficient way to do that was to be the most adaptive. Unfortunately, we have tricked ourselves into thinking that because we have access to highly refined carbohydrates, you know, um, work from home, uh, clothes made by other people far away, whatever those systems are, uh, localized crop monoculture, these are all things that seemed efficient to us as individual creatures, but made us inefficient as a species. Uh, in the same way that if I would give a dog the choice between some starches and a bunch of nutrient-rich fats and meats, it's going to go for the fats and meats because that's what's best, even though it might make it sick in the long term. We always go after things that seem scarce and precious. We've invented a society that can, at great cost to the environment of the planet, produce things that are incredibly, uh, to our limbic reptile brain, are incredibly valuable. And we've tricked ourselves into thinking they're good for us. And while they might be good for an individual in a competitive environment, we are no longer in a competitive environment. If I have a pound of foie gras, you can have one too. So we're no longer in this competitive environment, but our reptile brain thinks we are. And so we tend to go down paths of addiction and selfishness. We forget about altruism. And I think it takes huge system shocks. If I can wax a little more rhapsodic for one more second, it is also naive for us to think we're the only sentient planet doing this. And if you look at holarchies, you have to ask yourself, what's the purpose of sentient life across all of those instances? And some of them make it through this phase of going from analog to digital, of um, relentless abundance and, and self-actualize and figure out what it is to be a society, what it is to be a species that's successful. Um, you've obviously heard of the great filter, and I think that this is the great filter, is does a species successfully transition from scarce atomic worlds to abundant digital worlds without burning itself out. And I think the jury is very much out. Current political and societal systems suggest we're not doing a very good job of it. And oh my God, I wish we had leaders that thought this way and a population that could understand them. Wow. Uh, you've, just, you've just sort of brought up so many fascinating things. Uh, I want to sort of zero in on seven of the things that you said. Um, as I I'm just glad we recorded it all. Yeah, you're, as I understand it, you've made at least like 11 really interesting points, but I want to respond immediately to seven of them. Uh, okay, so first of all, um, what you say about, yes, 
the natural tendency of the universe as we know it is entropy. And there's a wonderful discussion of this at the beginning of Steven Pinker's most recent book, Enlightenment Now, uh, which makes the same point uh, not as elegantly as you just did. Um, he takes longer to do it. But, uh, but yes, that is the natural tendency. And so if you see a self-organizing system, then that's a good indication that you're looking at some sort of um, self-organizing, you know, something, a system. It doesn't have to be a life form that's, it's not necessarily sentient life, but, uh, and I think if you look at the evidence of the core samples from Antarctica and from the Arctic and other locations on planet Earth, but I think the Antarctic core samples are probably the best source for this. We can see that clearly the Gaia hypothesis has a lot to recommend it. I mean, it, it, there's something to that shit. I mean, it does seem like life on Earth understands, you know, and obviously I'm, I'm anthropomorphizing it, but life on Earth seems to understand that it operates best when the average temperature on planet Earth is between X and Y. And so there are all these mechanisms that seems to that seem to kick in, right? And uh, and ensure that the average temperature stays at you know between X and Y, right? And that this is the right, and this is really really important, right? So yes. That is absolutely that is absolutely true, um, but I don't know. There, it seems to me like there there's more to it than that. Um, there are. I seem to have lost our connection, so I'm gonna stop. I'm, I'm still here. Are you still there? You're still here. Yeah, I'm still here. Yeah, I'm just. I'm yeah, just for some there. reason, it seemed like it was like we were lost. <laughs> But, I know uh, if I don't but, talk for three minutes, people assume the world has ended. So I uh, know I usually don't. I'm, a, I'm a, enough of a narcissist that I'm <laughs> glad to like speak by myself for ten minutes or twenty minutes. Uh, but um, yeah, so absolutely, that's true. And we seem to um, entropy seems to be a general principle. And when we say the opposite, that is true. And we can see that over time, processes have changed. In, in a way that has maintained constant, like relatively constant temperature. So uh, this guy, a friend of ours who goes to our church, he's a climatologist at McGill. And, uh, and he says, you know, that's kind of one of the amazing things is that if you look at uh, these core samples from going back millions of years, you find that like when temperature has gone up or down too much, various processes have kicked in in such a way. Yeah, I mean, the Gaia hypothesis keep, for the albedo, yeah, right? To, to, keep, to keep things within like a nice, like medium, right? And I, I think that's absolutely true. 
I think the issue, though, is that when we try and take these these metaphors derived from biology or from climatology or from, you know, wherever, and we try to apply them to technology or to markets, I think we very quickly run into a problem, right? Because there's just no way in the natural world, the world that we find when we're watching the Discovery Channel or Animal Planet or whatever, there's no way that a lion can suddenly become a thousand X fast, right? Like there's no way that a mountain lion can become overnight. Yeah, but I, like think, there's a, I think there's a fallacy here. This is, this is why analog is different from digital. There's no way an analog lion using millennia as an evolutionary time frame and DNA as the information system can mutate there's a ton of ways that an, 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 an algorithm generating a, a simulation of a lion in a simulated environment can do that in timeframes that are astonishingly fast. So one of the big things people don't realize about digital is the marginal cost is zero. So it doesn't cost me anything to make lots more of that thing and then run ruthless tests against them in virtual environments, right? The reason AlphaGo was good at Go is because it played 12 billion games of Go against itself and ruthlessly culled all of those that weren't good at it. Can you imagine a country deciding to generate Go champions that way? That's a human rights abuse. So we have to realize that to, to think that we are somehow the apogee of this particular holarchy, that analog us is somehow the apogee of that, is the height of narcissism. A virtual lion, given the right simulation conditions, could absolutely increase its speed a thousandfold. You want to know something crazy? I learned this science fact the other day. Do you know why bats transmit a lot of viruses? Why? Because they need to fly. Let me explain what that means because it sounds crazy, but here's why. A bat needs to fly. Flying is hard work and bats are heavy because they're mammals. As a result, their mitochondria need to generate much more energy. Bat mitochondria generate far more energy than human, human mitochondria. Why is that a bad thing? Why don't all creatures have more energy? Because the production of energy generates free radicals, which lead to oxidization and DNA mutations. Okay, so the bat should be a mutant, except the bat has a different immune system that prunes away offending conditions much more quickly. The bat's immune system is able to get rid of mutations much better than other mammals. The fact that it does this means that its immune system is entirely different and it doesn't lead to the incredible inflammation that we see in other species. Because bats don't get high incidences of inflammation, they are riddled with viruses asymptomatically. Bats carry viruses because they need to fly. Biological systems are fucking weird, and they're all around us, and we don't understand them. And they are deep-rooted. And to think that we understand how these systems have evolved and, and worked over millennia is crazy. Now imagine what it's going to be like to try and reverse engineer an algorithm that just told you you broke the law or that says you don't get medical treatment. We are entering into a time where we need entirely new constitutions for digital rights. The difference between a human and an algorithm should be that a human has recourse. But to think 
that because a lion can't evolve fast in an analog world means that life can't evolve fast is the height of analog hubris. And we need to stop thinking like that. Uh, well, I mean, well, first of all, I, I absolutely agree with you. I, my, actually, my, uh, my master's degree was on the, to some extent, on kind of the obsession with, and my doctoral thesis was on the obsession with uh, health and wellness. And one of the things that I was surprised to discover about halfway through my research was this weird <laughs> this weird sort of dynamic system within the human body whereby uh, our immune systems are our, our healing system is extremely efficient when we're young. So if you cut yourself or you break your leg like you did recently, uh, when you're young, you can heal from that very rapidly, right? So, and that's, that's a, an efficient system when you're young. But as you get older, your healing system sort of calms down and it becomes like much more, and so it takes you longer to recover from a broken leg or cut on your finger or cutting yourself, shaving or something like that. However, this is actually adaptive, strangely enough, because there is this other thing that kills most living systems, including bats and including us and including, uh, which is that these mutations build up over time, right? And the mutations uh, cause cancer over time. And having a really efficient healing system speeds up not, this is why, like, the, you know, Barbara Ehrenreich brought this up in, in her book when she had breast cancer, that wonderful book that she wrote, a uh, very bitter, nasty, brilliant book that she wrote while she was uh, struggling with breast cancer. But she said, you know, all these people that say that somehow, oh, we're going to give you vitamin C to fight antioxidants and we're going to give you all these things to like boost your immune system while you're fighting, you know, breast cancer. So it's fucking bullshit. Like she goes, first of all, a lot of it doesn't work period. Uh, but the stuff that does work, um, is actually very likely to have the opposite effect. So if you speed up, if you give somebody human growth hormone or you give, if you speed up somebody's, um, their healing system, their immune system, um, that actually is far more likely to speed up the growth of the cancer. So uh, most of the things that they use to fight cancer actually slow down your healing system. Right, and, and, and this slow is down the your, fundamental your paradox. System. This is and, the and fundamental so, paradox about it. So we it. have these two systems going on, and so the reason why your healing system slows down is precisely because, and this is like Joe Rogan was talking about this on his podcast uh, about a month ago, that these guys who take like these uh, various kind of like human growth hormone, things like that, that like allow them to like put on lots of muscle in their 50s and get like their dick hard and stuff like that. If they've got a cancer brewing, it speeds that shit up like crazy. Right, and this is the reason why cancers that you get when you're in, you know, in your thirties, like 
like women who get breast cancer at 35, guys who get like testicular cancer at 33, like they die fast, right? Because their healing system is in peak condition and it, it feeds, it fixes your cuts just as much as it feeds your cancer, right? So it's this weird, weird kind of, yeah, like you say, like a paradox where whereby we are the product of these complementary systems, right? And if you try and fix one system, so if you try and like slow down your immune system a great deal so that you can deal with your cancer, well, you might die of a common cold. So let me ask right? you a different question. Um, let's change topics. Do you think the universe is a simulation or not? Um, we, are, we are in a I think it's entirely plausible. I think it's like, it's very, very plausible. Uh, but I think there's no way for us to like, it's, it's one of those questions like, like, like a God question where there's no way for us to know one way or the other. So I'd rather focus my waking attention on other problems, which are maybe more likely to, to sort of produce a, a result that's useful to myself and other people. Uh, so I agree that you can't properly measure anything, but if you were to talk about the universe as a simulation, there's a few things that you would have to do. Um, first, you, when you think of a computer screen, you think about resolution, right? And the maximum resolution, we know the maximum resolution is the Planck length, which is a specific unit of measure that um, is the smallest possible unit. Uh, we also think there may be the equivalent, because of space-time, of a unit of time, like a step function. Now, if I'm a person who is building technology um, at scale, I am going to have a concept of storage called eventual consistency. If you and I both post to Twitter at the same time, your feed might see my thing, it might not, and my feed might see yours, it might not, but eventually those tweets would all line up in the right way. That's called eventual consistency, and it works almost all the time when the information isn't time critical. On the other hand, um, there's a concept of record locking, which says that like, if the stuff you and I are doing is absolutely, um, has to be all right all the time, like a bank transaction, then I send you a message going, hey, don't change that thing, and you go, okay, I won't change that thing, and then I go, here's the new thing, and you go, okay, I got the new thing, and I go, okay, you can change that thing again, and I go, great, I'm changing the thing. It's a much more time-consuming model. involves back and forth direct communication. And then you look at um, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle and the idea that you uh, can't really know where something is uh, or uh, you know, the, the idea that only when you observe something does it coalesce into from a probability to a known state. And you look at entanglement, which is when two particles that were interacting, even at a distance, seem to be able to communicate it faster than the speed of light. That's a very good analogy for the kind of storage models that we see in computer systems at scale. And the older I get, the more I look at the workings of the universe, not an astrophysicist, not a scientist, just a curious nerd, <clears throat> the more I see the underlying patterns of what you would need to make a system behave at scale. That said, if the universe is either a simulation or somehow functions like a computational system of some kind, um, it is likely that there's an operating system that makes sure things don't break. There's an antivirus system and so on. And if, it, if it's running these different um, sentient species of which humans are one, 
in the system and those systems are trying to become efficient, you need to put in checks and balances to make sure that you don't have a rogue process that takes over the system. So I recognize very much the errors of my Cartesian ways in trying to reduce the complexity of the universe to a computer system. But from an analogous point of view, for this to be the best of all possible worlds, and I'll go back to what Leibniz said about the best of all possible worlds is the one in which the fewest starting conditions produce the greatest number of outcomes. If this is the best of all possible worlds, it has an operating system with checks and balances and antivirus systems. And the more you look at life at all forms, from viruses from, from viruses up to uh, organisms like uh, humans, up to uh, tribes and species, up to even planetary ecosystems, these checks and balances to keep things from, from recklessness seem to exist over and over again. And I think whether you're talking about why bats carry viruses, why 60-year-olds shouldn't shoot themselves up with growth hormone, we have the, you know, the idea of telomere scrubbing and the cumulative damage of oxidization that happens to cells. These are all things that seem to put into place caps on lifespans, uh, inability for organizations to scale beyond a certain size. What I think is fascinating about the transition to digital is that it allows us to do abundant experimentation at marginal costs. It is very likely that every successful species in the universe, that either any species that comes digital dies, or that any truly successful multi-planetary species um, that has managed to get off its rock is largely digital. Every time I watch a science fiction movie, I want to scream. Why are you putting bags of meat in the fighter ships? Like, they can't turn. They can handle four or five Gs. Get Luke out of the thing. Let R2 fight. He's clearly a better pilot. <laughs> for life support systems. Like, what the hell? I used to have a, a science fiction book with a bunch of aliens getting on a spaceship to another galaxy using paper tickets. They didn't have Apple Pay? What the hell? Sorry if I sound angry. <laughs> but we have this inability to think about the future in a proper way. And, and it kills us because what we need right now is storytelling. I mean, the problem I see with politics right now, let's say that Alistair was king. Go ahead. You can say Alistair was king. Um, I'm going to wait. <laughs> Alistair is king. That's right. I'll take it. Thank you. Yeah. So I got three laws to save the planet. No private car ownership. No more eating meat. One kid per family, right? Those are my rules. I'm never going to get elected. But if I start saying to people, Imagine you didn't own a car. Imagine that the car came with your apartment or your membership. And now when you're going to go pick someone up from the airport, you have a car with big trunks, that you, a big trunk space that you can use. You want to go camping for the weekend, you get the camper van. You want to go downtown and find some easy parking, you can park in a, uh, you can take a small car that's very fuel efficient. All of a sudden, I get a fleet of cars. If a politician, instead of saying no private car ownership, because by the way, cars are parked 96% of the time during the day in England. It's very inefficient usage. So if I said, okay, we're going to reallocate resources. By the way, the other thing is a car that's part of a fleet gets driven much more. It expires in three to five years. You don't have 15-year-old clunkers that are polluting, still wrecking up the streets, much better servicing, and so on. So I don't say to you, nobody gets to own cars. I say everybody gets access to a fleet of cars, perfect for what they're doing. If I said no more meat, because clearly meat is bad for the planet and bad for humans in all kinds of ways. And it's, a, it's something we don't want to collectively envision and realize, but just on a sheer protein per unit of sunlight, it's, it's shitty. But instead of that, if I said no more meat, 
imagine how many delicious innovations there would be in vegetarian cooking in the next year. Imagine how quickly, so the price of a Petri dish of lab-grown meat in 2012 was $325,000. I don't know why I had these numbers in my head, but welcome to my brain. The price of that same Petri dish, basically a hamburger patty of meat, in 2016 was $11.65. Two years ago, the Chinese bought $300 million of lab-grown meat from the Israelis. The cost to grow meat would be vanishingly small. We could use abundant solar. We could grow it locally with less transportation. There's all kinds of reasons why that's good. Politicians tell us this is the thing you can't have. They leave out the part where human ingenuity finds something so much better. And this is the problem with modern politics. We don't tell the story about what could be. We tell the story about what must be. And if you tell people what must be without telling them what could be as a result, they will never back the idea. If you have yeah. one child, maybe you have better playdates, closer family networks, you give your kid more love, you can afford to send one kid to college, and so on and so on and so on. We don't tell the story of what could be, we tell the story of what must be, and we do so at our peril. And I think the story of what could be with digital evolution, um, with iterations like this, is, is tremendously uh, hopeful if we get it right, but this is the test if our species wants to move up the holarchy to join other sentient species or snuff itself out. And this is, I think the next hundred years is where we figure that out. Well, I mean, I, I completely agree with you that, you know, part of what you're talking about, uh, or at least a, a colliery of it, is that there is, uh, that markets have a kind of magic, that if there's a desire and you have innovative people, they will figure out, you know, almost like a coronavirus, right? They will find a way to, life will find a way to sort of make that happen. And I think that's absolutely true. And if we look at, especially the last couple hundred years, uh, markets have worked all sorts of amazing magic. However, um, there are problems, right? So right now, you know, for instance, uh, my my wife's cousin is working at a, a hospital in Massachusetts, which is one of the most wealthy states in the United States, which is one of the most wealthiest states on planet Earth. And they have run out of all sorts of basic supplies. I mean, things from hand sanitizer to, like, masks to, like, so... And, and part of the reason why they've run out of all these things is because they listened to market fundamentalists and Silicon billionaires who said, you should let the market decide everything because the market is like almost like a force of evolution. And so if you can get your masks made in Iran or China or Puerto Rico or your um, cheaper than you can get them made in Idaho. Well, then close that fucking plant in Idaho and have them made. And you know, as Sam Harris pointed out the other day uh, on his podcast, he's like, some of these decisions, when you look at look at them with a little bit of distance, it looks so insane. It looks as if, like during the Cold War, if the United States decided, you know what, we can manufacture bullets far more cheaply in the Soviet Union. So let's just 
you know, close all of our factories in the United States and our allies, you know, let's just make all of our bullets in the Soviet Union. And nobody in the room saying like, um, dude, uh, what if they decide to like keep all the bullets? This, like, is, this is a problem of downstream awareness though. We're really good at fixing things after the fact and urgency and we're very bad. I, so if I had lots of free cycles and I was younger, I would write a series of stories I would try to sell to Netflix. And in this series of stories, I would think it's funny because Siri thinks I'm talking to it in the background. Um, in this series of stories, I would have Spectre or whatever the Bond villain equivalent is be an agency that works for the government creating artificial crises in order to compel humans to act. Um, if you look at Wikipedia up until 2010, the, the estimated time it took based on the edit logs, someone analyzed the edit logs, the estimated time it took to create Wikipedia up until 2010, arguably one of the greatest human resources of knowledge that ever existed was a hundred million hours. And people go, wow, that's amazing. How did they get 100 million hours of human time? What an achievement. Clay Shirky points out, Americans watch that, spend that much time watching TV commercials every weekend. The question should be, why aren't we doing it? And if the only way that we can compel people to, to react is by giving them an imminent, imminent uh, downstream crisis as opposed to systemic prevention, as opposed to wisdom. If the only way that we can create, compel action is through a crisis, then I love the idea that there's a secret evil agency that's actually backed by an even more secret government department creating crises that cause humans to move to the next level. So you want everyone to become a vegetarian? These guys taint the meat supply as part of some sinister plot, and so on. I think that'd be a hilarious um, combination of uh, you know, Ocean's Eleven meets civics that I would just love to write. <laughs> no, I, I agree. It's just when I, well, very often when I've interviewed kind of people who are like cryptocurrency experts or libertarians and stuff like that, they have all these like beautiful ideas, but they don't realize that a lot of their ideas eat themselves. Like they don't realize that like to do the things that they want you would have to eat a lot of the things that they hate. Yep. Right. And they just, they, it's, it's this, it's like talking to somebody who doesn't know how to play chess very well. And so they only think like one or two moves ahead and they haven't thought like six or seven moves ahead. And so they're like, yeah, yeah, this would be fucking awesome. Fight the power, dude. And like, they don't realize that like a bunch of the shit that you want can only be done by governments and by international organizations. Now, I'm not saying that those things do it very well or efficiently. And I'm not saying that there couldn't be other things that could maybe do it better. I'm just saying you haven't thought this shit through, son. Like, you, you, what you're proposing would, like, burn up the, the, the shitty boat the shitty leaky boat that we're on without providing us with an alternative. Right. And I think that's why. And that, that's like, that, more time honestly, honestly, Alistair, that is like, that explains fucking 95% of my conversations with Mylan techies. 
I think uh, there is a societal and cognitive equivalent. I think the idea of moving from fluid to crystallized intelligence is and is the mimetic equivalent of your organism slowing down over time and healing less quickly so it does so that it, it can fight off the cancers that tend to come in as a result of oxidization. And that's why I say even when it comes to human lifespans, entropy is such a consistent law and the universe is an attempt to balance between longevity and the consumption of energy in order to create extropy. And I think um, if one doesn't take a holistic sort of systemic view, I, I, one takeaway that was going to come from this whole pandemic is that people are going to be, at least for a generation or two, much more interested in systems thinking. We had a, you know, chaos theory, which reached its height with um, Jurassic Park and the butterflies and smug physicists and chaos theoreticians. Um, I think chaos theory and this idea of complexity is going to inform a lot of fields like artificial intelligence research that we are not aware of. Um, this, this trade-off between uncertainty and entanglement. Uh, all of these, there's this natural tension between um, young, aggressive certainty and old, gentle dabbling. And I think the two of them represent this tension that exists in all things to try and get it right. And that's why I say the underlying, um, the underlying power in the universe is aspiration. It's this, it's this, it, the desire to get it right, if you will. I really hope that humans have a desire to get it right. I think if, if we as a species have lost the desire to get it right, then we're fucked. Mm. What are, you know, I've been asking everybody this for the last couple of days. Um, what are a bunch of things that suck that are going to be burned out? I, I'm sort of, I'm thinking about, you know, the fact that big, huge changes like, you know, World War One or the Holocaust or 9-11 and things like that, like, there are these big changes that happen and they just, they're game changers, right? They, they kind of like, they change people's opinions almost overnight, right? They, they change social norms, right? So uh, as I was saying in that, that sort of post that you referenced earlier on, on, on Facebook, like uh, casual anti-Semitism. My grandfather told me this, you know, British guy from Manchester. Uh, casual anti-Semitism was just totally cool, like, and normal before World War II. Uh, after Hitler, after World War II, after people figured out about, like, what the fuck you done with, like, the Holocaust, it just wasn't cool anymore. And that was a very, very sudden change. It, it happened rapidly right so uh there are these things that happen and they they change things very quickly so um in your estimation you're a guy who has consistently uh proven on a number of occasions that you've been ahead of the curve and that you've kind of seen what was coming so uh, what are some some things that you think are going to change quite dramatically uh, as a result 
of this pandemic and and maybe well actually let's start off with that i think we're gonna see a rise of science literacy um i think people are uh currently you know the first episode of the coal rail report the first ever he coined the term truthiness first episode um and it was basically defined as i want this to be true so it is true and we have lived for the last 12 to 15 years through a truthiness era. Um, last year, everybody in the world got a crash course in American civics. This year, everybody in the world is getting a crash course in statistics uh, and epidemiology. And I think uh, we'd be better off if we, we teach calculus in, in college, in uh, high school, but not stats. I wish we reversed those. I don't use calculus every day. I mean, it's a point, but I don't use it. Man. But a I use stats man. to figure my, out. What my wife is. My wife has been saying this for uh, like 15 years. That it's ridiculous that we teach quadratic equations, uh, equations in calculus, but we don't teach right. stats. And there are reasons for that. Absolutely, by the way. absolutely. statisticians are so much more important to democracy. Statisticians are employable. Calculus teachers go to schools. I'm going to get hate mail for that line. Um, <laughs> you will. <laughs> Yeah, but but think about it. Who gets to figure out actuarial tables and bank loans? Yep. Um, so there was an amazing blog post by Morgan Husserl from Collaborative Fund called The Most Important Forces Shaping the World. He wrote it l- mid last year. And I'm going to read a bit of it from you uh, for you. What caused the financial crisis? You have to understand the mortgage market. What shaped the mortgage market? You have to understand the 30-year de- decline in interest rates. What caused falling interest rates? You have to understand the inflation in the 70s. What caused the inflation? The monetary system in the 1970s and hangover effects from the Vietnam War. What caused the Vietnam War? Well, the West's fear of communism after World War II and so on. And he makes the point that every current event has great, 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 great grandparents. And he says, the ultimate of those great grandmother events was World War II. It's hard to overstate how much the world reset from 1939 to 1945. Penicillin, radar, jets, nuclear energy, rockets, helicopters, subsidizing consumption with consumer credit and tax deductible interest. The highways, which were built to evacuate cities and mobilize the military in case of nuclear war, the Cold War, the internet, the civil rights movement, the female workforce in the labor, uh, sorry, female labor force in in working, almost anything important to you in 2019, social, political, economic, or whatever, can be traced back to World War II. I think we are going to see a similar impact, but it's very hard to tell. Like, if I knew what the impacts are going to be, I wouldn't be talking to you. I'd be too busy trading. But I think that uh, one of my favorite series ever, and I've had the, the intense pleasure of actually becoming friends with the guy over the years, is a TV show called Connections. Uh, James Burke is, uh, made what is widely considered the best documentary of the 20th century. And if you haven't watched it, I strongly suggest you go watch it. I haven't. It. Yeah, so, uh, I've, never, I've actually never even heard of it. So it's a 10-part series. He made another one called The Day the Universe Changed. And what he does is take you through, he starts with some innovation. Like in the 14th century, the temperature went down so only the rich could get glass windows. Blah, 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 blah. And then this guy thought that diseases were caused by smelly air, so he wanted to build atomizers. That's why they called it malaria. Blah, 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 blah. These guys were trying to build a plane, but the engine wasn't efficient enough. Happened to meet the perfume guy, figured out the fuel injection engine, the airplane. And you're like, oh my God, the airplane came from a decline in temperatures in 14th century Europe that made only the rich have windows. And it is, it is so central to how I think and so central to how I wish, how I wish people thought 
The challenge, and many of my business partners will tell you this is a problem, is you can very easily fall into analysis paralysis. You can very easily sit around trying to find the pieces of the puzzle without realizing that your goal is to finish the goddamn puzzle and maybe you should take a chance. And so I think um, what we will see is a bit of analysis paralysis where people start to try and become more system thinkers because not being a system thinker is what got us into this problem in the first place. The, the big, big mistake out of all this, which people aren't going to be happy with this because they're not going to blame a political party, nobody expected the tests to fail. We expected, like all the doctors I've talked to say that the simulations around coronavirus and pandemic management never even put the tests don't work as an option in the scenarios. So they're gonna, people are going to be like, okay, let's overanalyze, let's be systems thinkers, and, and that will cause a bit of analysis paralysis. It's going to cause the pendulum is going to swing back towards let's analyze it more, let's be more scientific. Um, and then there will be, of course, political backlash to that where there will be the people who are impetuous. Here's, and I'll say one last thing about this. In a time of abundance, America is an amazing system because Americans... Um, make a lot of leaps of faith. I mean, America is a faith-based nation. Having lived there twice, it definitely is. But a leap of faith means you do something when there's no evidence that it's the right thing to do. In a time of abundance, a thousand startup founders make the leap and 999 are wrong, but the one that's right gives us Google. <clears throat> that's okay. In a time of scarcity, when you're facing what are known as wicked problems that cannot be, they don't have a good solution, they just have less bad solutions. These are problems where the person... Uh, trying to solve the problem is part of the system. These are problems where you can't do split testing or A-B testing. At times of scarcity, a top-down controlled economy that, that does planning first does much better. And so if you look at the, success, the countries that have successfully mitigated COVID so far, they tend to be countries that uh, rate high on um, compliance if you look at studies of populations and cultures that do not comply a lot, they tend to be Middle Eastern and um, Southern Italian, and they have what is known as flouting behavior. Flouting behavior works very well when you don't follow instructions in times of abundance because you take risks and you come up with novelty and you iterate faster and so on. And so what we're seeing here is a, um, a struggle between compliant and flouting countries. Um, and by the way, uh, flouting countries do not respond to punishment at all. Um, and I think you're seeing that in the in the scientific impact, and you're seeing that in the in the uh, spread of the disease in the countries like Taiwan and South Korea and Japan that have been able to control it. So um, I think we will see a, a rise of I wouldn't of compliance and collectivism in some cases, um, and then you'll see defiance in the others, and and this may in fact increase political polarization. Uh, I don't know how the U.S. doesn't turn into two countries. If the blue states have it now, consume all the resources, and then the red states get it later, and somebody says, yeah, but you're the ones getting all the transfer payments. Like, that's a, that's a horrible scenario that is all too probable, particularly if the current political establishment thrives on discord. Don't you think a lot of uh, the sort of Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Silicon Valley tech billionaire ethos is based on, uh, you know, to, to use a crass term that is way too overused. My, my wife thinks it's like basically bullshit at this point, but um, neoliberalism. 
it, it's based on this idea that like openness is good. Um, just, you know, the more that we open up our borders and open up our minds to new ideas and, and new ways of doing things and, and new that this is basically going to be a good thing. Almost, you know, across the board, almost without I will exception. say that, I will say it, that it seems with- like this, uh, neoliberalism seems to have a bit of a black eye at the moment. I don't like to give labels to anything. I couldn't tell you what a neoliberal was. Um, the closest I can think of is if, if, uh, if the guy from the Matrix voted blue, I have no idea. <laughs> right? um, well, uh, a, a very well-defined. I know, I know what you yeah. mean. I know the concept, but I don't like the idea of labels without scientific background. I will say that, with the exception of crypto coin bros, every tech founder I know, and I know many of them, including some of the ones that you probably know, genuinely believes they're doing the right thing. They have an incredible lack of context. Um, I, the problem is this. No, humans optimize for the world they know, and everybody grows up in a different environment. I cannot possibly, as a privileged, loud, white male in Canada, make political decisions that are best for everyone. That is an impossibility because everyone is different. And so... They all think they're doing the right thing. And I've seen teardowns of people who are genuinely nice people. Um, I'm sure that Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos was convinced that if she just kept going, she would eventually build this thing, fake it till you make it, I'm going to save the world. And I'm sure that part of her is sitting around somewhere going, if you guys had just let me keep going, I'd have a 10-minute blood test for this thing right now and we'd have saved the planet. I'm sure she's thinking that. And I'm sure she believes it. The reason we have checks and balances, government, and so on and so on. Here's, I was thinking a lot about governments recently. And I think that the best way to define a society is a group of people who have agreed to abide by a set of laws, including laws that imprison those who don't abide by them. That's weird, right? A bunch of people got together and said, we consent to being governed by a set of laws which, if we break, we will be imprisoned for breaking. That's the definition of a society. And so that set of laws is based on a set of, of um, consensual agreements that you've evolved. Democracy is the will of the many. Constitution is the rights of the individual. And the tension between democracy, which, which if, if left unchecked, would result in mob rule and lynching the one black guy in the town because all the whites said so, is tied to a constitution, which gives inviolable rights to that individual. Too much constitution, and you have a bunch of special interest groups having parades and claiming that they need to be treated right, um, slowing down the society as a whole, and finding inefficiencies. Too much um, democracy without constitution, you have trampling on civil rights. And I think that in a digital era, um, we are going to fundamentally change what we can do. A digital government can provide a different set of services to each citizen that can be tailored to that citizen in ways that a, an analog government could not. And so we are going to renegotiate the balance between um, the constitution and the democracy, the rule of the rules, the rule of the many and the rights of the few in a digital era based on what is now possible. 
Well, I, I, I'm inclined to very much agree with you, but I, it's interesting to point out that like our mutual friend, uh, Claude Theriot, who's the executive producer of this podcast, uh, he has pointed out on numerous occasions since this pandemic hit that the globalists, the techies, um, have consistently, since this problem hit, uh, responded in, in the wrong way and, and often the counterproductive way, and that it's precisely the kind of people that you were talking about just now, uh, the nationalists, the people who see community in a much more narrow way, um, they're the ones, I mean, we see this right here in Quebec, right? I mean, like our, our premier, who was not very popular with me a couple weeks ago, um, he has been just crushing it when it comes to dealing with like this particular problem. And as Claude points out and has pointed out on numerous occasions, um, the fact that he's dealing well with this problem is not an accident. It's precisely because he has recognized that a healthy human community or ecosystem or anything needs to have a, a healthy relationship to the outside world, which means not, you know, total kind of closed and North Korean guardedness, but also not this kind of ridiculously utopian, you know, move fast and break things. And like uh, the let's just embrace diversity without any kind of like, there has to be a, to think about it like a cell there has to be a, a permeable membrane which is open to new information but not excessively open. There has to be a blood brain blood, blood brain barrier. Yes. It's permeable to some things and yes. That's so a I, think, wonder, I, I wish I had thought of that and fuck you for thinking of it. That's yeah. why you asked me on. Uh, <laughs> I think that I think that uh, and I think that the the real question here is um, each society, if we define a society as a group that consents to a uh, set of laws, if it is too permeable, admits people who do not consent to those laws. If it is impermeable, shell, uh, finds itself isolated from others who don't share those laws. So figuring out the permeability of society, we talk about you know people coming in and acculturing themselves and so on. Um, and it's very dangerous because you get too far along that line. You get into eugenics, you get into racism, you get into abuses of civil rights, marginalization of populations. I saw a photograph of a parking lot in Las Vegas with six foot square spaces for homeless people to sleep in. So they were socially distancing in the city with the most vacant hotel rooms in the world per capita right now. And regardless of what someone would say about cleanups, there is something fundamentally wrong with a human society. And yet I'm sure there are people who go, no, we don't want to do that because they'll never go back. We don't want to do that because you have to clean the hotels. At some point, we need to come up with a common set of threads that makes us human. And the challenge is that when I look at politics today, and when I look at leaders today, they're not doing the kind of vision that says, like I said before, imagine the delicious foods we could have 
or won't it be great to have a fleet of cars at your disposal? They're not painting a vision of a better future. They're not painting a vision of what we can be. They are not aspiring. Politicians, when you watch the news, the news is about politics. It should be about the things that politicians are working on. I don't see a debate on climate change. I just see a story on who yelled about it the most. That's a problem. When the news becomes about the politicians instead of the politics, when the stories are about who yelled about the wall, who wants the wall, and who doesn't want the wall, instead of breaking apart the economic and social impact of, of immigration, we are dumbing ourselves down. And that's why I think if the universe's core guiding principle is to aspire, then we as humans have to make that our core principle, and our leaders have to teach us to aspire to be our better selves. And if we have lost the ability to find those that aspire and let them guide us, then we've failed as a society and I worry about our children. Yeah. I mean, are there anything, and this is the second part of the question I was asking earlier, but like, are there any things that you've been saying or that like the tech industry has been saying for a long time that you think as a result of this pandemic, people are going to to come around and be like, all right, you guys are right. How many people haven't killed themselves because of FaceTime? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm completely serious. I'm completely serious. Um, my mom is in a basement. She's been putting lesson plans together for my nine-year-old daughter. She's loving it. She's sharing those plans with others. She gives her homework. My daughter's been doing Chinese dragon dances using sock puppets. She puts on a shark and emoji when they learn about fish. And she can explain to you why a shark is not a fish. Thank you very much. My mom is feeling useful, more useful than she has for decades. She loves it. Maybe not decades. My mom's pretty awesome. But we have created a set of technologies. We don't, it's very easy to forget. The iPhone is like 11 years old. 11 years old. I, yeah, I, I, wanted, I, wanted, to, I wanted to stop you on that because, uh, first of all, I, I completely agree with you. One of the things that I think is wonderful about social media and tech is that it has, you know, I, I, I was one of the original volunteers for Centre Paul, and I remember going and visiting these old people who had, you know, no family or no friends and everybody was dead or, you know, out of the country. And I would see these people who had been basically in the equivalent of like solitary confinement for a while. And they would be going fucking crazy. You know, they would be, and people would think that they were senile or they had Alzheimer's. And in fact, all they had was like just a deep craving for, for human companionship and for other people to be around. And they were just like, they were getting fucked up the same way that prisoners get fucked up when they're in like the shoe, you know, like, uh, and so I absolutely agree that social media and technology has made it possible for, you know, for your mom and my mom to like communicate. I mean, my mom's in Verdun right now. And like, she's a, kind of a pretty shy introverted person to start off with. So like this 
quarantine has not been a it's, it's not been kicking her ass. Let's put it that way. So she's she's all right with it. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's great for us misanthropes. But I yeah, think I mean, it's but not just it's social not media. Be, it's not been okay for extroverts. I, I told Annalisa yesterday, my wife, uh, I was walking down Santa Ana, and like we went, I went to Seagulls and to try and get some stuff and to to farm free, and like it's really kind of it's like a Walking Dead situation. Extroverts who really really need a lot of attention. And they need a lot of people to pay attention to them and to like talk to them and stuff like that. They are, especially the older ones, they are fucking freaking out right now. They are like really, really, really hurting right now. Like it was, you know, you're walking around on a Saturday night or Friday night and like there's these drunk guys that are trying to talk to you. Like, I'm finding that like in the middle of the day in the plateau right now. So, like, so but I, they, but I wanna, they're, I wanna... they're hurting and I do think they're going to start killing themselves. Alistair. So I, I think that we have to um, take a step back and I would say it's not just FaceTime. We have access to the sum of all human knowledge in our pocket in about three seconds. We have perfect locational awareness in any city in the world. We have the ability to translate from any other language to any other language really fast. <clears throat> My life feed back to like 1997 when I started posting pictures on the internet can position me in almost every context with every face. We haven't figured out the technology to tell me that yet, but you know, it's, we're not far away from me going, hey, I'm about to beat Bob. And it goes, these are the last five times you and Bob were smiling together. They were in these places. Here are the products you were consuming. And I go, great. Is that disingenuous? No, it's not disingenuous. It's just perfect memory. We have been given almost perfect recall. That's crazy. The only cost for that perfect recall is we, it turns out that we have to share our memories with everyone else, which kind of sucks. But I think that there will be a much greater appreciation for what technology has done to bring us together. All changes are painful. The abundance of misinformation on the internet is huge, but most people could only consume information from like three or four sources. Now they can consume information from wherever they want. They can exercise their own judgment. We definitely need to treat stats and teach stats and critical thinking better. But I think that what this is going to make people realize is we've come a hell of a long way since 2000, like a hell of a long way. We are effectively a new species and whatever you want to call it, like some kind of, you know, uh, homo connectus maybe, uh, is this really weird human machine transitional hybrid? And I think that this will make us realize that in ways that very few other things have. And the downstream consequences of that, the uh, every company I know is scrambling to put together a disaster recovery plan. Turns out that everybody can have one by installing like Zoom and Slack. Those are weird times. Not everyone, obviously, but, but um, I think a realization that we are inexorably tied to our technology for better or worse and so we better learn how to live with it in one another is a, is something I hope will happen. That is incredibly optimistic and hopeful. And I could think of no place to better finish our, the first part of our conversation. We need to have a part two of this. This is a pretty meandering conversation. Yeah. I mean, we, we need to have a part two of this. Uh, ranty, about. It's basically ranty old loud white Anglos complaining about the world. <laughs> 
I like to think it's better than that. But we need to have a, a part two of this. But but I do think in our part two, I definitely would like to talk about how it's very interesting to sort of uh, the one of the founders of WordPress, I'm blanking on his name, was on Sam Harris's podcast the other day. And he said, you know, it's it's good to look at which companies are holding on to all of their employees. You know, Google, WordPress, uh, Amazon, like, and to look at the ones that are immediately dropping all of their employees. Um, because the ones that have saved for a rainy day and are prepared for this, for a, a difficult situation, that's probably where you should have had your money all along. You know, and maybe uh, we can talk about economics in the second one, but those that were under capital, under using their working capital, were not making the maximum investment they could. Cash flow management is a very complex thing. Restaurants have 16 days cash flow management. Most businesses have 28 days. And if you have more than 28 days, you are not turning over inventory fast enough. You are not uh, leveraging your assets. So it turns out that, uh, yes, I agree but the problem is GDP, not cash reserves. We should. Well, I mean, one of our, one of our, like one of the, uh, one of the businesses that keeps the lights on in Lakeville, um, Elsa's, you know, in here in the plateau, on the corner of the Bignon Roy, uh, we we ran into one of the brothers who owns the place the other day, and like, um, they don't have sixteen days. <laughs> I mean, they grew up, their their family came from Portugal and they dealt with like all sorts of horrible things from like fascist coups to communist takeovers to like total economic collapses. And so they, they were taught from their family that you don't have 16 days. You should have enough money to survive for a year. And they the strategies survive for a year. I know it's money. They, they do. They, they do. Awesome. They, they have enough money to survive for actually, you know, I, I ran into one of the brothers the other day and uh, they, they have enough to survive for about a year and a half, two years. Right. That strikes me as like an intelligent business model. Yep, absolutely. Right? If if you've got a business model that is constantly like a Ponzi scheme, reliant on getting like new VC capital all the time, and if you don't keep having stuff coming in all the time, you're fucked within a week. Well, maybe your business shouldn't have been a business. You know, I mean, maybe like, Maybe huh. that was like yep. really not a good idea. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, all right. This go, is great. Go read your daughter some stories and, and, and teach her why uh, Dolores Umbridge is terrible because she is. <laughs> and, uh, and I hope your, your leg heals and this pandemic passes and uh, we will talk again soon. All right. Good talking to you. Thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah, all right. Take care. Bye.